We condemn this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. You had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis. You, got a, you, had a lot of bad, you had a lot of bad people in the other group. Speaking of good guys and bad guys, what's with the polarization surrounding hashtag Tigany, hashtag MeToo, and hashtag Black Lives Matter? How are the movements articulating a claim to rights, if at all? Why are fundamental human rights such a contested issue? We thought this would be a good place to start conversations about the place of rights in redressing structural injustice, working towards social injustice, and triggering liberation movements in the United States and across the globe. Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights, CGHR for short, here at the University of Cambridge. I am Matt Mamoudi, and I'm a PhD student here at the University of Cambridge at the Center of Development Studies. And I'm Sarah Mohammed, and I'm studying a PhD in Politics and International Studies, and we're your hosts for this season of the Declarations podcast. With every episode, we'll be exploring contemporary debates about politics and human rights with people who study them and people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world. With us today, we have Niusha Bastani, Arunjajit Basu, and Michael Barton. Hi, I'm Niusha. I'm also a student in development studies doing an MPhil, and I'm very much interested in how the language of development studies is related to the language of human rights and how human rights in the developed world are so closely connected to human rights in the developing world. So I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. My name is Arindajit Basu, Jeet for short. Um, I am pursuing an LLM in public international law here. Um, I'm particularly looking forward to this podcast because of the wide variety of perspectives and expert range of expertise we have among the panelists here and also diversity of um, geographical interests that would surely contribute to a very wholesome and enriching discussion. Hi, I'm Michael Barton. I'm sitting for an MPhil in International Relations and Politics here. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this podcast. I'm looking forward to having kind of uh, conversations where we can relate human rights issues to topical political issues and show their continuing relevance in the contemporary world. Thank you to our panelists. Right, Surer, do you want to kick us off? Do I? Okay. <laughs> so today we're talking about the language of rights and the language of liberation. Where do these things intersect and where do these things separate? Are social justice movements articulating a claim to rights or are they articulating a claim to something more, something more radical? That's what we're trying to explore today. Um, we're trying to explore things in the United States and across the globe um, and trying to forge those trends transnational solidarities wherever they exist so let's get started um yeah so this question of the language of rights and the language of liberation is really interesting to me um because i guess the question is um does the language of human rights which emerges from a specific historical period in a specific area laden with a historical association with like natural law for example um are these things can these things be elevated outside of their specific uh, cachet um, and to be used towards revolutionary ends? Or does the language of liberation actually ask for something different? Does it ask for something more? Does it ask for uh, the decolonization or deconstruction of elite spaces? Um, and it, it's, a, it's an open question, I think, whether um, liberation or liberation language can actually fit within human rights. So I'd like to see what you guys think about that. I think it very much matters to answer the question, I think it very much matters 
from where this language is coming from who is using this this language and of course how this language is being used so if you look at the three hashtags that matt mentioned at the beginning of this episode they are particularly empowering because they come and represent in many ways the raw desires of communities that have been oppressed for a long period of time it is not the oppressor who is somehow appeasing or aiding the oppressed it is the oppressed who are collectivizing together in a bid to make some sort of radical change and in many ways this change is glaring in face of the oppressor so the language and who is using the language the actors involved are a key factor that we have to consider when we look at um wh- whether language can in fact shape radical change the flip side of that of course is that if the language is being used and manipulated by the oppressor or by people who do not have enough of a stake in the issue at hand it can often lead to a stalemate and just to get some perspective on this from the international arena we have this entire issue about palestine that has been plaguing the community that has been a lot of atrocities committed there largely because all parties involved whether it is united states whether it is fatah whether it is the israeli community they've all tried to manipulate people involved in the conflict by using terms that sound very nice and sound very idealistic such as the two state solution such as peace talks such as accords but what do these things really mean do they really have some something to contribute to making a tangible change in the lives of the people instead if the people on the ground were able to somehow possibly through social media that is the main avenue of protest today if they were able to somehow have a say in the way this language is scripted that is something that could possibly make far more tangible change rather than using language that sounds idealistic but really doesn't really do much that's a lot of pessimism coming from a law student <laughs> nisha i feel like you have a lot to say on this yeah i don't think it's that pessimistic i would agree with what you're saying and i think the positive side is the space that human rights language opens for when it is the oppressed speaking up so if you think about the bds movement coming out of civil society organizations in palestine their mission statement very much emphasizes the humanity of palestinian people and i think what's interesting there is that what what you could call more radical activists are focusing on is not so much the denial of rights but the fact that the denial of human rights also leads to the denial of people's humanity and that's something that comes out in the black lives matter movement as well and also the coalition that's the movement for black lives emphasizes the dignity of black people and the humanity of black people so are we saying that social movements in a nutshell are also trying to redefine what it means to be human in the first place using the language of human rights Well, I think you see that really interestingly at play with Black Lives Matter, right? Because as a slogan, it's something that shouldn't be inflammatory and shouldn't be radical at all. It's just an assertion of humanity. And that's what makes people who don't like it so angry. You know, they respond with the all lives matter thing. They're like, how dare you assert that this one group matters? You're implying that other groups don't matter. When in fact, it's obviously an attempt to redress a historical imbalance where certain people have been dehumanized. And so the fact that a statement as basic as that Uh, and that an assertion of a right as fundamental as that the right to life and the right to kind of humanity can be inflammatory in that way shows that those imbalances and those gaps have been there historically and that those create spaces for activist groups to use the language of human rights in a way which then becomes radical does invoking or using the language of human rights then tie you to a specific conception of human rights that's dictated by 
international institutions, for example. So you said that Black Lives Matter, for example, calls towards human dignity as a space to which to manifest their practical and political aims. Um, does that necessarily mean then that you can uh, go further than that and that necessarily you're tied to the way that you, uh, for example, international organizations might define your human rights? Or does that still give you a space to maneuver in which you might define those rights differently? I would like to completely agree with you saying that that is what I came here to study, the how international law and international human rights law can make life better for people. But we've seen in the you know, six, six and more decades of the United Nations, there have been the main failing of the United Nations has been and other international institutions as well, has been that they have simply not been able to reach out to a lot of people on the ground. And that is in many ways to do with the enforcement mechanisms at play. At the same time, the doctrines of international human rights law and say the rights that are enshrined in these documents, equality, association, liberty, the right to life, all these serve as the edifice for various social movements that can take place. So while principally it's great to have the language of rights from international institutions and that can serve as the edifice for improving lives and possibly having change on the ground, it really needs to be taken out of a nice cushy hall in Geneva and be taken to movements that are actually making some sort of change on the ground. And that's where, linked to this episode, uh, we were talking about the take a knee um, sort of campaign that's been in the NFL in the United States of America. And sport has always been a, an avenue for athletes to channelize modes of protest. I mean, if you look back to the 1968 Olympics, where the first Mexico Olympics, where the first instance of black power really came out, that raw anger against so many generations of injustice against black people in the United States. Um, I follow cricket much more closely when the West Indies cricket team started beating England and started beating England without opting into, I mean, colonized versions of what it is to be a gentlemanly cricketer. That's when a lot of oppressed black people across the world said that this is my culture, I am proud of it, and I want to reclaim what it is to be a proud black man or woman, right? And in many ways, this drew from the principles of uh, human rights law or, I mean, humanity, but it channelized raw anger. And I think for protests to actually make tangible change, you need to channelize that sort of anger through some avenue. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think that's 100% true. Um, and, and But just to go back to sort of Serrera's question, I think what that really tells us is that the ideals that the UN sets for what it means to have human rights are fundamentally contested domestically. Um, specifically because those that language itself has also been a culmination of different ideologies, not just ideologies about human rights, but also ideologies about human nature and about what our economic system should look like. So in an American sense, for example, human rights is very much the right to liberty, the right to privacy, the right to be able to do as you please without intervention from the state. And so human rights, the human rights discourse comes to be one which is fundamentally divergent from ideas of the welfare state, from ideas of reparations, from ideas of something that is more collective. Meanwhile, a decolonization effort will have to address the exact opposite. So it'll have to draw from a different notion of, of where what our human nature is all about and what our economic system should look like, what an inclusive economic system looks like. And so that builds on a completely different notion of uh, reason and rationality, right? So like the neoclassical model has always typically be based on, you know, you serve your own self-interest and, and the rest is, you know, the rest is just going to sort itself out. 
that is your fundamental right. But if we take a different notion of what it means to generate value within a country or within an economy, then you might see that there is a lot more value put on the individual worker. You know, in Keynesian systems, for example, where you have the unions play a much larger role. That's a situation in which the individual and the collective becomes much more important. And I think that's sort of what we're moving towards when we start decolonizing a language that has been so inherently tied to the language of neoclassical versions of capitalism. Right. Sorry about that rant. But to summarize, so far we've spoken about language of rights uh, as well as the language of, of social movements and how they utilize them to challenge overarching norms of what it means to be human and what it means to have human rights. We also talked about how this intersects roughly with the economic systems and the economic reason that emerges out of these languages. So with that in mind, it seems that there is a large element of intersectionality that we need to address within this language of rights. Um, particularly when we're trying to answer how social movements are redefining the language uh, that oppresses them. So the term intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, um, a law professor at Harvard University. So she spoke of intersectionality conceptually uh, to describe the experience of both race and gender um, in the specific context of black women. So she was trying to speak to the fact that race and gender and then also class, for example, are systems of oppression that are necessarily intrinsically linked in the domestic context of the United States. So that you can't unparse where race begins and where gender ends and to solely ascribe something to one or the other category. You have to understand these things intersectionally. And so this language has been taken up um, by queer communities, by uh, different racialized communities, by uh, an entire bastion of peoples who found in this concept a language to be able to express how um, positioning yourself at different locations relative to class, relative to gender, relative to race, um, re relative to nationality, and other forms of systematic oppression um, produces specific social locations that uh, are commensurable, so they're measure uh, so they're understandable in location with one another, um, but that they are not uh, totalizing. I think another way that intersectionality comes into this conversation is looking at the demands that social movements in the United States are making right now. So looking at the movement for black lives, in their demands, they're specifically intersectional, not only looking at identities, but also looking at how different forms of oppression directly intersect. So looking at how federal funding is being directed away from the most marginalized of black neighborhoods and being put to use in the US military and how that same military is now being trained in Israel and is both oppressing Palestinians and then also the police force that is trained in Israel comes back and is oppressing black people in the United States. So in their demand, they're asking for that funding to be redirected to marginalized black neighborhoods. And this would address not only oppression in the United States, but also oppression in Palestine. So intersectionality, it's one way to look at it is that the there's a certain activity that oppresses I mean, people all across the board, all across the globe in this case. The other point I wanted to bring up was in many cases, intersectionality becomes a problem because a certain person who is oppressed due to one identity may be privileged due to another identity. So should I right, rightly brought about the point about black women in the United States, uh, the movie Hidden Figures referred to how in many ways the oppression was being done at that time by, by some white women, even though they were being oppressed as women, but they weren't facing the oppression that they would face as black 
women um just to take it di- slightly more geographically uh, make it more geographically diverse in india feminist discourse has existed for a long period period of time and and that's been great but now many scholars are claiming that the issue with the discourse is that it's being framed by upper caste or what are known as savarna feminists where you ignore the cultural aspirations and the dreams of uh, lower caste or dalit females so in many ways the sort of hijacking of feminist discourse in india by upper caste feminists is something that's actually being called out now so when you have a movement you need to ensure that you address intersectionality and see to it that the language you are using or the modes of protest you are using have something in it for everyone because i mean they use the term check your privilege very often and it's in most cases all of us um in this room right now are are privileged in in not one form but probably in in in, in many forms and people are oppressed are, again maybe oppressed in many forms or maybe privileged in one and oppressed in another so when you check your privilege you really have to look at privilege in a holistic sense and i think that's a really important message for everyone not just theoretically but also in terms of how you look at yourself in everyday life absolutely and being aware of that relative privilege really means that we also have a responsibility then to when we know we have space to express ourselves in certain ways to leave some of that space for those who don't And then the question is how do we then use this language of intersectionality to address injustices like the ones that Nyusha has been talking about? How do we use that to mobilize and to create understanding and a kind of coherence within movements rather than animosity? I want to pick up on another point that Nyusha was making which is incredibly important, uh which is relative position not just domestically but also internationally. In the case that Nyusha was explaining, we had a solidarity network in one specific country that was traveling uh and being utilized elsewhere. Um and so this brings us to another point that we wanted to talk about which is uh how uh how liberation movements that are expressed and cultivated locally um becomes translated onto the global stage um and how they create uh international linkages with one another um off of this understanding I suppose of some commonality of uh understandings of what the the specific form of oppression is that they're facing communally um whether that might be for example uh white supremacy or histories of colonialism uh that 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 those uh negative uh legacies might be what ties them together but also understandings of common struggle uh, might be the language that are used in order to create those transnational linkages um and so while there might be like different levels and disparities of power amongst and within like here we're talking about people who have um the capacity to have an american passport which in and of itself uh, engender certain privileges right um but that the overall um the, these capacities to um form transnational linkages i think are uh indicative of forms of uh solidarity but also empathy understanding what a uh, struggle looks like in different contexts Absolutely. And so I think we should draw on the phenomenal Angela Y Davis here. Uh she speaks to the moment in which a Palestinian activist started addressing activists of the Black Lives Matter movement across the United States to share best practices on what to do during struggle, during demonstrations, to fend off police, uh to speak out without necessarily um being subject to arrests and how to really protect yourself in a moment in which they realized that they were subject to the same sort of oppressive structure that um black people in America has been have been subject to for so long and this system is is one that we know now of as a prison industrial complex right absolutely picking up on that <laughs> 
A hundred percent. So systems of surveillance, like we know, for example, that uh, states um, share information and best practices amongst themselves um, and learn from one another about how to create and uh, construct systems of surveillance. Right. Um, And so these informational knowledge systems that are being uh, uh, passed on at the grassroots are effectively made to mirror the ways in which states are learning information from one another. I mean, I think you can say that in a functional way, even though transnational linkages of oppression have always been important, and as Nisha points out, there's always been, for example, back to Vietnam, a feedback loop between policing abroad and policing at home, and and a link between the tactics that the American military develops uh, for the purpose of counterinsurgency abroad that then gets shipped home, as well as the actual equipment itself. I mean, you know, we know why there was military equipment on the streets of Ferguson, but I think it's still true that today that that transnationalism is perhaps more important than ever because we live, it's a cliche, but we live in an increasingly globalized world and one in which capital is increasingly mobile. That's made it easier to move human rights abuses out of the light and out of scrutiny so that they're harder to challenge. And and that's been an incredibly important part of the way that capitalism and its operations have developed over the last couple of decades. And so I think those those linkages are even more important than ever before. Okay, so in this in the start of this episode, I called Jeet a bit of a pessimist uh, for not really believing in the UN system. But with that said, though, you did mention the enormous power of on the ground and uh, bottom up approaches to addressing and bridging the gap that's left behind by powerless interna- international institutions when it comes to at least human rights issues. So I wonder in what ways social movements have already been able to advance human rights. What are some of the best practices and how do these manifest themselves in these hashtags that we spoke about earlier? That's a great point. Um, and I think that goes back to the overarching theme of this episode, which is about language. Um, one of the main ways that uh, activist circles have been able to capture dominant attention um, and political pressure um, is not just through uh, consciousness raising efforts and awareness efforts, but actually dominating the social space, um, internet conversations, being able to translate uh their uh, languages, uh, being able to translate their social capital um, and their actual uh, prowess on uh, technological platforms um, into practical action, um, into campaigns for demands, into knowledge production, into all of these different ways that people now understand and relate to themselves um, and have uh, effectively a free education on how to understand themselves uh, relative to others. So those campaigns that you were mentioning, um, Black Lives Matter being uh, being one, uh, the Me Too campaign, um, the Take a Knee campaign, all of these campaigns and many, many others have been incredibly successful at uh, utilizing social media platforms, but more importantly, utilizing dominant discussions uh, as a jump off point in order to create concrete um, and sometimes even intangible claims, and that those are the those are the claims that you really need. The claims that are beyond um, quota systems and uh, representation, but actually go to the heart of structural injustice and oppression. I agree with you completely there, but I do also think that at the same time there needs to be an element of caution about the way you convert a specific hashtag or a specific slogan into a political program because by their nature they contain so little of their own content that they can be quite easily perverted. So to take the example of Take a Knee, uh, Colin Kaepernick has been doing that for, for quite some time and it's flared up as a major issue because Trump got involved and you know said some things, made some people angry, but very quickly the conversation about that phrase and about that act has shifted to being one about opposing Trump. 
that's not what the original purpose of the protest was and Kaepernick has been minimized in the discussion that's taken place since so a lot of the coverage is focused on a lot of other athletes but excluded him I think Sports Illustrated had a cover featuring a lot of athletes taking the knee in different disciplines and it excluded the person who originated the protest and the person who's most directly suffered uh, as a result of participating in this protest so there is always that danger that a more dominant narrative something that the mainstream media are more willing to discuss can take over and can pervert your slogan in that way so i think it's always about striking that balance as well following off of that point i wonder what happens when uh hashtags that come and hashtags that go uh do a good job of consciousness raising but don't actually translate into a practical tangible change in the way that you might understand as legislative change or um, institutional change um, in a very visible in your face way um, do we still think those are successful efforts and do we still find value in that like because now people identify themselves maybe as an intersectional feminist and put that in their twitter bio but that don't actually uh, translate into material difference i think from the perspective of a lawyer um judges aren't cut off from public discourse like it's not like a judge sits in his room the entire day and then on monday comes up and gives a judgment the huh? judge what <laughs> <laughs> i hope so <laughs> um judges eat dinner judges drink tea and coffee <laughs> with other people so my point is that in many ways judges do respond to public discourse in united states judges are politically appointed in other countries where judges are completely separated from the legislature and the executive they still are human beings at the end of the end, end of the day so whatever discourse is generated through any form of traction whether it's social media before social media there were other forms of protests on the street which are still continuing that may not necessarily result in a judgment coming out the next year for example if you look at the trajectory of civil rights movement that led to brown versus board of education happening as late as i mean the 1958 there were there was a lot of discussion which may not have resulted in tangible change on the face of it because jim crow was still still in operation but that judgment was a product of tangible continued possibly minuscule change and it so happened that on that day though judges of the supreme court did choose to have dinner with someone who may have said that it might be a good idea to have a judgment like brown versus board of education and not continue segregating black kids and white kids so in that sense discourse could lead to legislative or judicial changes and in many ways judicial changes because of the legitimacy they have in certain countries so in in in, in india for example the supreme court does have a sense of legitimacy that is recognized uniformly across people with in the with people across with people occupying various rungs in the political spectrum so it's sort of uh, it's not a chicken and egg debate about whether society can enforce legislative change or whether like the law can influence societal change it's more of a cycle where you have discourse that could result in some judicial le- and or legislative change and that results in further societal change so it's sort of a catapulting effect that is is interrelated Right, right. So I think I think there is a lot of truth to that. Um, but I think to some extent, we also have to be real to go back to Sarah's point about social media, about what it actually translates into. Whilst, yes, in some cases, judges may be influenced by it, to what extent do they 
manifest themselves in terms of internalized norms about what it ought to be like to be, say, an American who lives with other Americans from other ethnicities and backgrounds. Uh, to what extent does social media has the, have the capacity to do that? Because honestly, to a great extent, I feel like social media tends to exist and operate within the context of an echo chamber. And we've spoken about this before, its ability to uh, create a lot of animosity and to perpetuate a divide between left and right has created a state in which different sides are not willing to learn from one another. And I think that's one of the ish biggest issues that I, that I take with social media campaigns is it's incredibly powerful and it has the magnitude to be able to do something great. But I feel that there has been a lot of apathy towards it. And that's problematic. On the other hand, I also take issue with the legislative aspect of it, of course, because once you do have um, some form of legislation passed, like, say, the abolishment of formal regimes of segregation, you still have segregation informally uh, manifesting itself into cities. One example being uh, Detroit. I like to draw on Metro City because in the late 1940s, white population of Metro Detroit try and get loans uh, and mortgages for housing in the inner city. But of course, what happens is that the Federal Housing Authority says, look, this is a very precarious, disharmonious area, which is really code for saying, there's a lot of black people here. You're not going to get a loan from us. So this genius urban planner, um, I say that with a lot of sarcasm in my voice, says, look, we're just going to erect this wall in between the white neighborhood and the black neighborhood, and it's all going to be fine. They erect the wall, the loans pass. Of course, you you're, you're get rid of this formal uh, authority. And, and since then, the wall has been appropriated by artists as a memory of what that segregation looked like. And even though there isn't segregation at that level in that specific area, what you see is that the same line, if you look at the census data, the same lines of segregation exist in suburban Detroit, where white people have access to housing that they have bought whereas um, black people do not own the houses in which they live in. The per capita resource expenditure by schools on black kids in the suburbs of Detroit are much, much lower than the per capita spending on the individual kids of the white schools in suburban Detroit. And again, this is now, right? This is since 2011. So it's amazing for me to see that despite the legislation, despite social media campaign, you still have these apparently non-internalizable norms um, that simply just do not manifest themselves into people's everyday reality. So then you say the struggle continues, right? Right. Does the struggle ever stop? No. Like that's the issue that we're, I think we're picking at here is that like at one point uh, we're looking at whether, whether um, Maneuvering through uh, judiciary systems, moving through legislatures comes short. And on the other hand, so discourse has its own specific discourse has its own specific strengths and weaknesses as well. Um, you have the strength of um, epistemic. Uh, you have the epistemic strength, which is you can create and cultivate different forms of knowledge. Um, you can kind of cultivate understandings and solidarities amongst folks. Um, you can have educative effects indeed. But then some of those weaknesses that come about are like deficiencies in leadership, um, deficiencies in programming, and the difficulty of translating these, arbit uh, like these kind of 
intangible demands such as the destruction of white supremacy or the dismantling of patriarchy into actual practical um, political programming. Um, and so the question becomes, how then do you navigate if, it, if not in either the formal or informal realm? And can we see a future, like, do you, do you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. <laughs> I don't think, um, so I'm not saying that the future looks necessarily bleak. What I take issue with is the, the debate that, that sort of bases itself in the narrative of progress. Uh, I take issue with the word progress because uh, I think progress manifests itself in a certain form of complacency. Uh, when you recognize that there has been progress, you recognize that things are better than before, and so you lose sight of the way in which struggle is actually displaced and that the power relations, the unequal power relations, are maintained. So I say we focus on change rather than progress. We focus on the moments of change that occur. And then we focus on the moments of change that don't occur, thereby making the invisible visible and constantly keeping a vigilant eye out for where we need to be more active. So I think that brings us back to the sort of exchange we had at the beginning where you said I was a pessimistic lawyer, and I surely am. But that also applies in the domestic realm where the point is that you don't get complacent because you have certain legislations or certain policy or certain judicial decisions in place. You look at the word that Shurair used at the beginning of the podcast as well. Look at structural injustices and structural forms of oppression that exist in everyday society. And you try and sort of use the language that comes through international human rights documents, through legislation, through judicial decisions. You, you utilize that to combat structural injustices, but don't think that, oh, because this legislation is there, I will assume that there is no form of oppression that does exist. 100%. So your point is that movements also subversively deploy the language of rights and the institutions of rights in order to gain the political outcomes that they desire, um, but that necessarily they're not always specifically tied to them and that they can define their their own rights and liberation in their own context in ways that means make sense to them um, and that aren't necessarily dictated from on high from these international institutions. Um, and that gives space for both structure and agency, I think. That gives space for to understand these individuals or these communities as operating um, with their own interests in mind, with uh, towards the goal of their own um, liberation effectively, but not necessarily tied to the specific language of rights. So I guess we've resolved the tension at the top of the program. Yay! Great, awesome. We can go home now. You're welcome. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I think this is a good moment to ask our audience, are there particular initiatives or movements that are bridging this gap between structure and agency and really making a tangible and long-term effect that we want to speak a little bit more about? Are there best practices that you're aware of that we're not talking about, but that could benefit our listeners or other social movements out there? In that case, do contact us at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast or on Twitter at declarationspod. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode or any future episodes, so please get in touch with us whenever. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and join us next week as we discuss the right to protest. Thank you for tuning in to Declarations.